Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Pyramid Podcast. Uh, I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Um, great to have you all here with me again. And um, uh, I'm I'm really excited today because um, a good friend and colleague of mine um, is back on the show for, I can't remember, third, fourth time? can't remember. Um, anyway, Maria French, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It is such a delight to be here with you. Uh, not only are you an esteemed colleague and a respected thinker and podcaster, but you're also my friend. So I just feel like we're at a pub somewhere and having a fun conversation. Yes, so this absolutely. is great. Thank you. It definitely feels like that. Yes, we've had a lot of. We just uh, we just we just spent like I think half an hour just talking <laughs> just talking <laughs> on the on the, on our video call before we started recording. Like it just got yeah. just lost track of time. So. I haven't caught up yeah. for a while so um yeah and uh and you're here to talk about your first book which I'm really excited about and there's an amazing story behind it as well like you just told me you just told me you wrote this in five months and without even without, five, five weeks. weeks sorry five minutes that's five weeks five weeks <laughs> sorry that is not me bragging that is me telling a friend off air and he's just brought it on air so <laughs> yeah but I did I wrote it very quickly. Uh, you didn't have a like a um, uh, a plan, like a an outline either, did you? Like it was just it just came to you, like it was just like in your head. Yeah, well, I I knew I kind of wanted to write a book that split itself between spiritual memoir and theological manifesto. I knew I wanted to point in a new direction for people and take some ideas and theology and concepts that are usually pretty well tucked away in the ivory tower and sort of make them available at a pop culture level to a whole generation and a whole demographic of people who find themselves, quote unquote, what they call deconstructing. And I just felt like I wanted to add to the conversation years and years of work and research and study and my own experience and things that I've learned along the way. And so I knew it was going to have to be a little bit of story, like my story, but it also had to be really challenging and theologically meaty, <laughs> if that makes sense. And because I've been doing this work for, I mean, I've been doing this work on an intense level for the last several years, but I would say, you know, I could go back about 15 years with the work and certainly my whole life with my story. And so when I sat down to write the book, it was just, it was just all there. So that's, I don't recommend trying to write a book in, in five weeks. And to be honest, I didn't set out to write a book in five weeks. I actually set out to write a book in two to three months, which is still fairly quickly. Um, but I just cleared my schedule and I said, I'm going to do nothing but this. And it just, it just came. And then it, which was great because then it afforded me a lot of extra time to do some serious editing and proofreading. And I'm just so happy with the way the book turned mm, out. It is really, really good. I've, I've had a chance to read some of the book, uh, and it is, it is really, really good. It's one of the, one of the best books that I've read on this subject for quite a while. Um, thank yeah. you um it's called safer than the known way yes i love i love title. that title so much because it's such a paradoxical title um yes. like where did that where did that title come from yeah well you know i love antiques and vintage furnishings um i have a lot of unique pieces in our home and a lot of it has to do with religious imagery i'm just always drawn to 
images that tell a story theologically and how people have interpreted religion through the ages. And so when I go to antique fairs and things like this markets, I always look for this kind of thing. And there's this one market I go to, particularly in the town we live in England in rugby, and it's held every month. And this woman always knows that I come looking for religious stuff. So she particularly looks for religious stuff to bring to me. And um, she had this postcard and I don't know how old it was. It's got to be maybe like 80, 90 years old. It had a classic William Holman Hunt. Um, yeah, Willie, William Holman Hunt, Jesus on the front. You know, he, Jesus is in the dark. He's holding the lantern. He's knocking at the door. And it had an excerpt of King George VI's speech, his Christmas speech from 1939, in which he quotes a famous poet, uh, Minnie Louise Haskins. And he quoted a poem um, by her that is known as The Gate of the Year, or God Knows. It actually goes by two titles. And part of the poem reads, and I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than the known way. And I saw it and I didn't know like what I was thinking or feeling. And it had this classic William Holman Hunt Jesus on it. And I, it's not really my style, but I, there's something about it. It was like speaking to me somehow. I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know. It was 50p or something like this. So I'm just going to bring it home. And as I thought about it more, you know, as someone who's done a lot within the paradigm of radical theology, like yourself, and a lot of this book presents radical theology in a very accessible, readable way for the masses is what I'm hoping. It's part of the aim of the book. As I read that postcard and that poem quote over and over again, it really hit me that that is essentially kind of what we're doing. We're moving, you know, past the light, sort of into the darkness. And we're traveling a path that is actually safer than what has been known. The known way is laid out for us, right? The known way is traditional theism, Western Christianity, you know, 2,000 years of Christendom and all of this history that we have. You know, we have something that people are deconstructing, dismantling, decolonizing, disentwining, (laughs) you know, add any D word that you like there. And you have a whole generation of people who are saying, for me, this is safer. For me, this brings more peace. For me, this brings more comfort. And it's actually safer to go out into this weird, dark chaos (laughs) than to stay within everything I've already known. So um, I framed the postcard. I put it on my bookshelf and it sat there for a while. And when I was ready to write this book, I just thought, this is it. It's safer than the known way. And then the subtitle is A Post-Christian Journey because essentially the crux of the book is what it looks like to live post-Christian while still engaging, you know, Christianity. Mm, yeah. And uh, it's very well written. It's it's Thank like you. a story in many ways like because mm. you start with your own story, which I is do, really yeah. – Interesting, like even someone who's known you for a while, it was it was really moving and powerful to, to read your story and your journey into all of this work. And um, so tell us a bit about, tell us just a, a little bit about that, and then we can move into kind of talking about some of the things you talk about in the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I wanted people to know that I have a story just like everyone else, and I'm not some theologian and some thinker just kind of spouting off ideas that I read in some book somewhere. I wanted people to know that I've actually been through it. I've walked through 
all of this. <laughs> um, and, you know, if someone has had a similar experience, I can just hope that they identify with my story and find themselves in my story somehow. So that's why the first chapter is pretty heavily autobiographical. And then we kind of move into some theological ideas, you know, from then on out. But essentially, um, I grew up in New York. I grew up in an Italian Catholic American community, and this was our identity. We were Italian and we were a Catholic before we were anything else, before we were Christian, before we were Americans, we were Italian and we were Catholic, right? So um, it was very much a cultural identity, and you didn't really stray from that. I grew up making all the sacraments. I remember walking into these big Catholic churches and cathedrals and parishes all over Long Island and New York. And I just, I don't know, it just, it was my DNA makeup that I would just walk into these cathedrals and look up and just be in such awe and such wonder. And, you know, you had to be quiet and there were people whispering and I could hear the pitter patter of like heels clicking down the hallway. And, you know, maybe I heard like the, you know, deep hum of the organ. And I heard the confessional boxes opening and closing. And then I heard, you know, the, the dangling of the chain of the incense being waved by the pre, you know, they were all of the, the sensory experience for me, but there was also very much this strong, profound feeling of there's something bigger and better in here than me. And I don't know what it is. It feels holy. It feels like I should be quiet. It feels like I should be in awe. So I'm going to respond this way. And then when I was about 12 or 13, um, my parents divorced and my mom moved my sister and I to a really large evangelical charismatic church on Long Island. And that is where, you know, most evangelicals and ex-evangelicals will understand this. You know, this is where I had my salvation experience where I quote unquote got saved, found Jesus. And all of a sudden, everything that I had experienced as a young Catholic girl, I, I was able to put a name to it. You know, that name for me at that time was Jesus. And I developed this personal relationship with this, you know, savior that lived in my heart and wanted to save me from sin and wanted me in heaven with him in all eternity and had this plan for my life. And, you know, of course, this is what everyone told you. You you're beckoned to come to the front. You know, there's, well, you want to go to heaven and not hell, right? And you want Jesus to be your best friend and you want this God that will look out for you no matter what, you know, and then that just kind of sent me into a full full several years of evangelical youth. So, you know, the missions trips, the evangelizing. I went to a public school in New York, so I was constantly telling people about Jesus. I started a Bible club in my high school. You know, we would do this thing in America where every September all the Christians who went to public high schools across the U.S. would gather and pray around their flagpole and everybody's walking in the school and they're looking at you and they're wondering what you're doing. Like anything evangelical Christian I could do from the time I was 12 to 18, I did. And then at that point, I went off to university. I went off to Bible college in the Midwest, and I became like full-on Pentecostal evangelical and, you know, engaging in spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all of these things. And I mean, I was just any kind of ministry I could be involved in. I was. Like I was just one of those overachiever Christians who just wanted to do everything for God and everything for Jesus as I possibly could. And then, you know, slowly, you know, graduating over four years, moving on, going into seminary, getting married, becoming a little older, getting a little bit of life experience under my belt, you know, things start to change. And some of those ideas and some of those concepts and even some of those relationships, not least of which the relationship I had with God, the relationship I had with Jesus Christ, you know, those start to change and evolve and even fade a little bit into the background. 
Um, you know, several years later, I found myself, you know, in seminary. I, you know, had moved from, I left the Pentecostal stuff sort of in my desk and I was just pretty evangelical. I moved to progressive evangelical, eventually post-evangelical. Um, and then, you know, so many years later, I found myself in this post-Christian, post-theist, I guess, space. And a lot of things contributed to that. And I talk a lot about it in the first chapter of my book, but that is sort of, that's really my, my faith genealogy right there. Yeah. So yeah. I've been around the block with all, with all of it. I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with that. I mean, like a lot of the guests that I've had on this show have a similar story. You know, there's going through that evangelical Christian stage of life, I guess that's almost, in some families it's yeah. almost expected. And and then yeah. you know things happen. Life happens, you know, and yeah. something some happen. some traumatic event normally of some kind, whether it's a small event or a big event, but it's a traumatic event. Um, and it kind of suddenly we have all these questions, and and what we have already isn't isn't adequate enough to answer those questions. And um, yeah. and this that. Well, and that's really what it was. That's that's a great way to put it, James. You know, what we have isn't adequate enough to answer the questions. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what it came down to for me. And I wasn't really angry about this. I wasn't mad. I wasn't sad. Um, just I started going through some stuff. You know, I went through a divorce after several years of an unhappy marriage that was a product of, you know, our evangelicalism. And you know, when you're going through something like that, as someone who's steeped in a church community, as someone who's seen as a leader, you know, as someone who's seen as like the standard, you know, there's a lot of pressure on that kind of Christianity and the people who are, you know, within its grasp to sort of be perfect and be good and be holy and be all of these things. And as the, our marriage started to break down, I didn't feel like I could go and talk to anybody about it. I couldn't tell anybody how unhappy I was and um, how this just wasn't working and how it needed to end, like, let alone like the the divorce word. Do you know what I mean? So when I got a divorce, it was actually a real big shock to everybody. And everybody was like, what's going on? Because we just didn't, I didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about it. And, you know, as that lack of talking went on, it wasn't only a lack of communication with friends and community, but it was a lack of communication with God. Like not only could I disappoint the people that were around me, but I also didn't feel like I could disappoint this God. And I couldn't go to this God that I had invested everything in my whole life with all of this. It just didn't feel like that was something I wanted to do. And it was a dark place. And it was really months and years of what felt like God just evaporating and just fading into the background um, and sort of, you know, oh, this isn't me. Like, I didn't do this. I'm, I'm kind of out of here type of thing. Um, and it just was this moment where I had to decide how I wanted to really engage my Christianity or if I did, or did I want to be an atheist or did I want to be an agnostic? And I coasted for a while not knowing what I was because once I got a divorce and kind of once my Christianity was just sort of shelved for a little bit and I just coasted really. And I, again, I talk about this coasting period in the book and how helpful it was to be free from anything that I didn't want to be attached to. I didn't want to be in my marriage anymore. I didn't want to be locked into um, communities that you know I couldn't be my real authentic self with. I didn't want to be locked into a God that you know, evaporated into the background uh, and didn't make sense, um, didn't 
you know, wasn't there for me, all of these things. And I just thought to myself, I am never going to be beholden to anything I don't want to be beholden to ever again. And that's where that post-Christian journey started for me. And yeah, again, it's it's all in the book, but. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I and mean, then the reason I made that comment was was really that that, that was my experience because I'm, for me, the traumatic event was, was my mother dying. Um, yeah. And, you know, like what I had already was not enough for me to deal with it. And yes. Or to deal with all the questions that it brought up. You know, um, and that's that was the start, really. Um, yeah. Um, and it's interesting that you talk. We we're talking about this because the, one of the chapters I really wanted to focus in on, um, which really spoke to me, I think, more than mm-hmm. any other chapter in the bit, was it's the chapter on deconstruction. Um, and yeah, like it's not like a super long chapter, but it's. Um, I think for me, like this, it, what you talk about in the chapter is. Like, and I won't get, won't go into all of it, obviously, but there's a, a sense of like deconstruction is almost a sense of following our curiosity. It's it, it's born out of curiosity, um, and it's continuing to follow that curiosity. And um, yeah. so, tell us a bit about about that and kind of how you came to that view of deconstruction. Yeah, well, you know, the the t- the time period I just kind of described to you. Um, I would say that that was, oh, I don't know, maybe back in like 2014, because that's that's when I got um, a divorce. And over that next year, year and a half, I was working in seminary. I was an adjunct professor somewhere, uh, not somewhere, but at a university, uh, at, a, at a Christian university. I was in administration at a seminary um, in the city I lived in. And I was just really steeped in like theological culture and theological work. And I started to explore post-theistic thought and radical theology. And, you know, out of all of the Bible classes I attended in undergrad, out of all of my seminary degrees, and at this point I have three, I have two masters, and I just graduated with my doctorate last uh, last spring, radical theology and the death of God had yet to be like really properly covered. <laughs> and obviously this is several years ago. So in the degrees I've done since then, I've, you know, made it a point to really study these things inside the confines of, of my classes and do my best to sort of personalize my interests there. But I think once I started to figure out that there were more choices between traditional understandings of God and militant atheism, I pursued that. Because for me, traditional Christianity, you know, the big God who lives in the sky traditional theism, all of that, that is so way past its sell-by date. It's so 20th century at max. (laughs) But yet we have like tirelessly, you know, and recklessly pulled it into the 21st century where it really doesn't belong and it's really not useful. And even when we update our methodologies and and our meaning-making mechanisms, and even when we bring forward how we do community, somehow we still feel compelled to bring these old theological ideas of God into the mix. And it's just, it's so unnecessary when we get a really big theological imaginations. And actually that's what this calls for. So yeah, I just, I started following, um, 
you know, this, this trail of radical theology that started to talk about God in ways I had never heard God talk about before. You know, when, when people talk about the existence of God and, and the ontology and being of God and the object of God, radical theology talked about the event of God and the experience of God. And I thought, oh, what does this language mean? You know, and then you follow that rabbit hole and you know, of the the language of event led me to the work of um, John Caputo, which led me backwards into the work of Jacques Derrida, who talked about this language of event and who connected it to the concept of the deconstruction, in particular philosophical deconstruction, which was actually, you know, comprised of um, engagement with literature and words and signals and signifiers and language. <laughs> and that's why when the language of deconstruction started to come to the surface in pop culture a few years ago to denote distangling yourself from toxic forms of Christianity, I thought, oh, how did they get this word? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, I've done a little bit with the current deconstruction community. Uh, you know, I, I taught a class on it about a year ago. I think, you know, when I was doing things with H and co, we did a deconstruction class. We, we had a, a podcast series on it. You know, I do a lot of the theological coaching through my Patreon. So I talk to a lot of people about their own deconstruction journeys. I've had some stuff published on deconstruction. Um, but I've really just tried to listen, just put my ear to the ground and hear sort of what's going on. And essentially people are, feeling abused and used, and there seems to be a lot of trauma happening. People are angry. People are raging against having been taken advantage of for so many years, and they want to turn around and reconstruct something better in its place. And that is actually not how deconstruction works. I can understand that people want to reconstruct. I can understand that people want a nicer, more inclusive God, but that's not deconstruction, at least not actual deconstruction. Um, and, you know, uh, to be fair, people need shared language to talk about what they've been through and to share similar experiences. You know, they need language to be able to convey some of these ideas. So I don't mind that deconstruction has been co-opted. But what I wanted to do, partly what I wanted to do in this book, was present actual true deconstruction as it was first presented. Because I think that it calls us to more risk. It calls us to sort of more danger. It calls us to more honesty. It calls us to more courage and to more bravery and truly stepping out into the darkness and truly traveling a path that is safer than the known way. And I wanted people to have, I don't know, power feels like the wrong word to use, but I wanted people, maybe agency. I wanted people have to have the power of agency inside themselves to say, if this is what deconstruction is, I'm up for it. Because deconstruction doesn't give us a promise or a guarantee of a future or that we will arrive somewhere or that eventually we will, we will, we will reconstruct something more useful. It simply says, hey, once this breaks down, <laughs> like whatever comes next in its place can break down again and again and again. And the moment something contains and houses and names and domesticates and says, we know that you know magical alchemic force with it, that is innate within all things to deconstruct almost self-destruct um will happen but it will only happen if we're brave enough to lean into it in a sense um and so this is partly what what the book is about is to invite people to some into some of these ideas that again like i said a few minutes ago 
unfortunately, and it's a shame, they're just not readily available to pop culture um, thought or conversation or, or readers. And I want to make these ideas accessible, but I also want to challenge my reader. So some of the things in the book will resonate with people. And some of the things in the book, people are going to say, I don't get that at all. That doesn't make, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And um, I've never heard of this before. And I, I don't really have any template. Um, I don't have anything to compare this to, or, you know, I don't really know what she means by, like, I want it to be a both end. I want it to invite people into a place where they're learning something and not because they went to university or seminary or they read like 50 academic books. You know, I want this book to present some ideas that they might get if they were in those settings, but don't have to be. Mm. And not just ideas, James. Like for me, this is life-changing stuff because essentially it gives people a new way to engage Christianity that has nothing to do with the sliding scale of theism versus atheism. Like that is such a tired conversation. I'm over it. I'm totally bored by it. Like apologetics doesn't do anything for me. Like you're just arguing whether or not things are real, whether or not God exists in a certain way, <laughs> you know, and this is why like, you know, I don't allow people to, to label me progressive Christian. Like I have a real, <laughs> I have, you know, I, I hate to say I have a real problem with, cause I don't have a real problem with anyone or anything to be honest. But you know, when we're talking about conservative versus liberal Christians, you know, you have a, a wrathful, vengeful, penal substitutionary sort of God on one side, right? Mm. The conservative side yeah. of things. And on the liberal side, you have like a God that is loving and all-inclusive and pro-LGBTQIA and anti-racist and, you know, pro, pro the immigrants, you know, you have this really nice loving God. <laughs> um, but it's still God and it's still being, and it's still the God that lives up in the sky. And we're still talking about a matter of existence. We're talking a matter of person, personal being. And essentially we're talking about an interventionist God. And this is always going to be problematic for this kind of conversation. And so that is why I use the words post-Christian or post-theist as opposed to atheist, um, because it has nothing to do with existence or whether or not God exists. It has everything to do with theological realities and how they can transform us if we let them. And it's about releasing our grip on all we think we know on that certainty piece. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are like, oh yeah, you've just got to sit in the mystery. Well, yeah, a little bit of that. But I know when people say that they mean the mystery of being. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like, I'm not concerned with anything that I can't actually see. Like I'm trying to move people past ideas of metaphysicality and ta talking about if if we are going to talk about religion, if you want to talk about Christian, if you don't, fine. You don't have to. You don't have to be in this conversation. There are lots of, you know, Christianity has made made lots of atheists of people throughout the centuries. But if you still have a horse in this game and you still want to be involved and you want to build upon your story of faith. Um, we have to move past that binary of God exists or doesn't, or, um, you know, God is mean or God is, you know, it, it's so much more nuanced than that. And religion has to be, again, if we're going to talk about religion, it has to be a way into the world as opposed to a way out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. I love what you said. Everything you said there, like, one of the things I love about, about, 
what you talk about in relation to this this word deconstruction is that it's not mm. there's no it's not prescriptive and it's not a destination and it's not a it's not boxed in it's not just like moving from one place to another place mm-hmm. um and it's not just about religion either like it's right. it's it's way more than that like i mean my experience of deconstruction is it's it's unlearning everything that you have been brought up with it's not just the religious systems or religious beliefs it's like the actual what are the what what is the system that we live in that has created mm-hmm. the things the, the, the circumstances that we that we encounter every day like what has created anti-racism what has created um, what has created systemic racism sorry that's what i meant um and what has created you know all this kind of anti-lgbtq and um, patriarchal yeah. stuff where has that come from is that just the religious stuff or is it where is that where where is this all coming from um yeah and it's kind of you're not just deconstructing your faith or deconstructing your your identity and also the also the the, the system that you live in um and yeah. kind of seeing it with open eyes yeah. you know um, yeah. and there's this great story you tell in this chapter i won't spoil it for anyone but it, of um of derrida <laughs> um which i I love this story it was just it was brilliant um and and how like that was the beginning of like deconstruction had started like just just by asking a question a simple question yeah it was like the it was like the unraveling of yeah things like because once because once you've picked up the thread Mm -hmm. it's it just it just keeps going and you can't it doesn't end you know there's no well that's exactly it. And that that thread piece that you just mentioned, I love that metaphor because John Caputo talks a little bit about what you just described and he calls it, you know, this this haunting and these ghosts that call to us. And once we've been disrupted by these ghosts, should we ignore the haunting and the taunting and the teasing of them all? We'll fall into utter despair because the moment you're slightly disrupted, do you know what I mean? It's like it's like the, the princess and the pea sort of old uh, children's fairy tale. You know, she's piled up on 100 million mattresses, but she feels the pea at the bottom and she's disrupted by this little tiny thing and it throws everything off and she can't sleep and she can't do anything until someone attends to this pea under like 100 mattresses because she can feel it. And that's what these ghosts are like. The moment we start to really lean into and listen to the whispers and those things that we can sense and intuit and that want to come into our imagination, but our imagination has been so stifled by a very small, narrow understanding of God, which includes both conservative and liberal Christianity. You know, liberal Christianity thinks they have this huge imagination of God. They don't like, they're just as boring, just nicer. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, But you, once you have been interrupted, once you have been agitated, there's no going back. And John Caputo says to go back would, would be to fall into utter despair because you just, you are never the same again. And this is the start of, of yeah. all of that. It's like once you've seen, you can't unsee. Um, exactly. And once you've tasted, you can't untaste, you know, it's. You can try and run from it. Yeah. But. <laughs> it's like, um, actually I wrote an article on the pandemic a couple of years ago and then and I called it apocalypse. Um, and, I, mm. and the reason was I found out the meaning of the word apocalypse is the unraveling of things that are yet to be seen, yet to be known. You know, it's mm. basically like the word apocalypse is basically an unraveling of the truth. 
and us mm-hmm. actually finally seeing mm-hmm. it for the first time and things that have not been known or seen. Mm-hmm. And I started, and mm-hmm. it's not the kind of this scary word that we've been brought up to believe. You know, it's it, it almost kind of sums up deconstruction in the sense like it's it is our it's like our apocalypse. It's like the unraveling of everything that we that we didn't know but we should have known um, about the world yeah. and about about religion and about ourselves um, and just yeah. starting to see the the reality be woken up to what's really yeah. happening. Yeah. And, you know, I think the unraveling piece, that's so important. And I think as, as humans who have an absolute addiction to knowledge and to knowing things, you know, this is this is why we have religion, right? Because for millennia, people have been seeking out the meaning of life in various various number of ways. Um, you know, as things unravel, we very much want to ravel them back up again, just in a different, more noble direction. And I think that is the biggest challenge: is to sit in the unraveling for really an indefinite amount of time. You know, like I said earlier in our podcast, like I had this period of coasting. Um, and I, I definitely years and years after my coasting, you know, and I still will until the day I die, be studying and reading and gleaning new things. You know, obviously uh, there's, there's so many ideas I, I present in this book. And at the same time, I refuse to answer questions that have to do with belief. And I get asked a lot, James, <laughs> mostly by people with ill intent trying to trap me. And, you know, I'll get questions that sound like, well, do you believe in a literal resurrection or do you believe in a literal this or a literal that or an actual this or an actual that? I'm just like, I'm not answering those questions. Um, One, it's none of your business, really. That's true. The first thing I say, it's none of your business what I actually believe and think on these things because these are very private and personal matters. And I, I talk about that. I have two chapters on Jesus and I don't remember which chapter it is. I think it's the first chapter on Jesus that I talk about personal savior motifs and how that's not actually the point of Christianity. And that if you do see Jesus as your personal savior, and if you are interacting with the person of Jesus um, on a regular basis in prayer or meditation or whatever, that's that's a personal matter and that is your own business. And you shouldn't need to, you know, that shouldn't be the litmus test for whether or not someone can engage Christianity. So the first thing I say is it's actually none of your businesses are very personal questions. And this, the second thing I say is, you know, that actually doesn't matter. What you're asking me doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if that literally happened or not, or actually, or empirically, or historically, or factually, any of those words. It doesn't matter. What matters is what we do with it theologically and how it transforms our communities, how we make meaning with it, you know, how the, how how it becomes useful to us in our own, you know, human condition and figuring out what life's all about. And for all intents and purposes, myself, you, the whole deconstruction community, the whole we've decided that we want Christianity to be the meta narrative that we live by. And that's okay. That's beautiful thing. I've decided the same. It's why I'm post-Christian and not anything Christian, because I will forever be engaging Christianity past it. I will forever be engaging God past God. Yeah. If that makes it sense. Does. And I know it sounds like, and I say this in the book a few times, it sounds like, you know, you're a guest at the Mad Hatter Tea Party. Like sometimes it's just hard to wrap ideas. They, they feel upside down. They feel backwards. But if you're reading the book and if the book feels upside down to you, I want you to know that you're reading it right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, 
it's really interesting because uh, for me reading this book it was, was interesting because I have not really known what I believe right for a long time and I don't mm. I, I haven't mm. known where I stood with Christianity or with Jesus, or with Jesus mm. for a while uh, you know um, mm. like my understanding of spirituality and is so much different now like Mm-hmm. My spirituality is informed more by science and intuition mm-hmm. and embodiment mm-hmm. and um like yeah than it than it ever has been before. And so like in a sense like my own spirituality has kind of outgrown Christianity and it's outgrown yeah. like like yeah. A, a kind of religious yeah. system, but at the same time there's still a strong element of Jesus at the at, in I don't know where, but yeah. in in that part of my yeah. life, in that well, part of my life, but in that experience of that, that I have spirituality, Jesus yeah. is still a part of that, and the Jesus story is still a part of that, and some of the teachings yeah. of Jesus are still a part of that, and like, so it's still yeah. a part of me, and I still love the liturgies, and I still love. I still love uh, contemplative prayer. I still love silent prayer. I still love all of those things and can and experience, have a divine experience through that. Um, yeah. And when it comes to Jesus, you don't actually have to choose like, okay, do I believe Jesus was the actual son of God or do I just think he was a human and a person like everyone else and he was just a really good moral teacher? Because that's what you find out yeah. there, right? You find that and then like any kind of conglomeration in between. But when we move past empirical realities to theological ones, you know, those debates, they become irrelevant. They become obsolete. They're not even on the table anymore. They're behind us. We're past them. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And there's so much freedom in that and there's so much peace. And that is why the book is called Safer Than the Known Way because it is safer in terms of our – the protection of our own sanity and our own humanity and not sacrificing our our sense of reason and our intellect and our intuition and our imagination and our sensibilities as well. Everything that makes us human gets to be invited into this post-Christian experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's like deconstruction is almost becoming more aware of your own humanity and how your humanity can be divine. Yeah. yeah. Um that is yeah. <sighs> yeah. And blurring those lines between like you know the divine or the not divine and the sacred and the profane or or the the sacred and the secular. You know the those are false binaries like a lot of other things. You know there's a lot of people out there talking about false binaries right now and and it's no different here. These are these are false false binaries. Like if we're walking somewhere, if we tread anywhere, for me, that's holy ground or it's also profane ground or it's both because both, both are beautiful. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like you do not have to choose. Exactly. It's not all or it's both <laughs> um, and. Yeah. It's both and, and, yeah. and more. Do you know what I mean? And, and that to me is radical theology. I mean, radical theology is a lot of things and I devote a whole chapter to radical theology. Not only that, but strands of radical theology are running throughout the entire book because it's been very important in, in my own theological rearing of myself. Uh, and also, you know, I, I'm passionate about getting this kind of thought into the hands of people who really need it mm. <laughs> again. Um, it's sort of why I've, I've written this book. So 
yeah, it's it's both end and then everything else. And I think I say somewhere in the book, you know, or something like this, you know, take your wildest imagination about God and faith. Take like dream and imagine as big as you think you can and then go even further than that. Mm. That's, that's what event is. That is what deconstruction is. That is that is what it looks like to engage what John Caputo, who's a radical theologian, says, all that is coming that we cannot see coming. If we can see it on the horizon, then it's not what we want. If we have imagination for it, if we can construct it, if we can build it, then it's not what we want. We want something that slaps us upside the head that we cannot see coming. You know, we want to move towards a horizon with no line. We want to follow a compass that doesn't point north. You know, we want everything that is subversive to everything we, we thought we knew. That to me is faith. And that's what I want. It is my earnest dream to know event, truly no event. Um, yeah, that, that I love that you talk about that concept of event and that yeah. deconstruction. And that was powerful for me. I've heard um, Pete Rollins talk about this as well. The idea of, of event of um, like this 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 thing that, that is that, that happens mm-hmm. um, and that we're kind of experiencing, you know, and um, that kind of shakes us out of what we know, like the, the structures that we know and the certainty that we know and and the, the duality that we that we have, um, yeah. and like creates that rupture that you can't, like we talked about before, the thread you can't you can't unravel you can't re- yeah. you can't ravel it up again once you've unravelled it. You know it's um, it, it's right. yeah uh, and yeah you explore that in that chapter about deconstruction and yeah um, yeah there's there's a lot in the book there's a lot I wanted to impart this is my my first solo volume, um, it's not going to be my last, mm. but I essentially wanted to take years of work and put it in a wee book <laughs> that hopefully will be useful to some people who um, are feeling all sorts of things that that I was feeling. I, I think I say in the, the end of the introduction that I've written it for a younger me and I've written it for a present and future you yeah. because- I essentially wrote the book that I wish I had 10 or 15 years ago when I was, you know, crawling around in the dark trying to figure out all of this stuff bit by bit <laughs> to be able to write a book in uh, 2023 and put it out for all of you. So, yeah, this this is the, the I, I wrote the book I wish I had mm. forever. That often seems to be yeah. the case when people write books is, you know. I wrote the book that I wish I'd been able, I wish I'd had, I wish I'd been able to read, that I wish someone had given me, you know, um, that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it seems to be a common pattern. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a labor of love and it's a love letter really to um, ex-evangelicals, ex-Christians, Christians who have been let down, Christians who feel isolated you know, people who have felt like they had to leave their faith because they didn't want to choose between what they had in atheism. And now they're just floundering and they've lost their sense of identity and they're going through crisis. Like this is a love letter to, to all of them. Mm. Um, it reads that way. It reads that way. And it, it, you know, obviously there's a lot, there's, there's, there's a lot of academic stuff in the book, but there's, there is definitely a real heart and a soul yeah. to this, to this um, book. And yeah, you know, a, 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 very authentic, Same personal, tr- you know, um, element to it, and 
know, this is true. This is, yeah, this is this is something that's that's, that's, that's born in someone's soul rather than just in their head. You know, um, yeah. and um, and that definitely it spoke to me, um, to my heart and my head. Yeah. You know, it was um, it was. Thank you. That was the aim. That was the goal. I did feel very pastoral in writing it. You know, I, yeah, it, it felt very pastoral. And did it, what, 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 what did the experience of writing it do to you? And what did it, did it show you anything about yourself and your, your journey and maybe your spirituality that you didn't, you weren't aware of before? You know, um, I'm not sure that it showed me anything I wasn't aware of, but it did show me my journey, you know, full, full circle in a sense. And I'm not a fan of the word circles and people will know why when they read the book (laughs) in chapter one, I talk about no more circles. But um, for me, it was just incredibly beautiful for me to to write out some of my story, not all of it, but the parts that are important to the reader for what I've written for them. Uh, write the theological parts and weave in bits of memory and experience along the way. And so, yeah, I guess it was a love letter to the readers, but it was also a love letter to myself and, you know, to say, look, look what you've, look what you've done. Like, look where you were, look how far you've come, look where you, you know, um, all of, all of the toiling, all of the grief and all of the pain and all of those times you had to go it alone and you had to make really big risky decisions. And I talk about some of those risky decisions. I talk about the motivation for some of them and who I wanted to be, who I dreamed I maybe could be and different places I lived and I moved to France for a while. And, you know, I I talk about all of that. And it was just a feeling of like looking back at a much younger Maria (laughs) and looking at her being like, you done good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I was happy. I was happy to see the journey I've been on and uh, not nearly done yet. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm excited to see where your journey takes you next. Um, Thank you, James. So well, you'll be along I for will. the ride. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll be, uh, I'll be reading those books and we've been talking about them on this, on this podcast, I'm sure. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Um, thank you for this book. Honestly, um, I couldn't recommend it any more highly. Um, and uh, thank you for all the work that you do. And, and thank you for being on the show today. Um, Absolutely. It was so my pleasure. Thank you so much. I loved our conversation. I love just chatting with you in general. So it was like talking to a friend rather than podcast. <laughs> Um, are you not, you know. so yeah thank you so much for coming on the show thank you um again like for for this book and for the work you do and um i'm grateful that um you've shared this with us so um the book is called safer than the known way it's available from January yep, 27th, 27th. Am I yep. right? Fantastic. So please do go and get that book. Um, and um, I'm sure you, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm definitely going to buy my own copy. Uh, it's going to be, yeah, Thank I can't you, wait Jane. to read the whole thing. So um, 
And where can people find you online? Yeah, my website, mariafrancescafrench.com, has everything I'm involved in, how you can get a hold of me, and yeah, just my social media links, everything's there. So, Perfect. Great. Um, that's fantastic. So, great. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, and thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>